All right. One of these days we'll show you the Bible Project video on 1 Samuel. It's very nice, very instructive, but it's just not going to be today. All right. Uh, everyone, we're, I was going to hook up the Bible to the screen, but since we can't do that, if you have a Bible, if you don't, you might want to grab one. This Bible's around. Okay. Um, so, First Samuel two and three. We're gonna we're gonna really try to get through both of them because uh, got to the. Um, all right. So, I think Pastor Bukes, you know, judges was a mess. And Samuel follows kind of on the tail of the book of Judges, chronologically, story-wise, narratively. And so now God's going to uh, make, things, make things right. So, um, so Samuel's coming along. Now, Samuel, or first Samuel, I'm going to have a problem saying the prophet Samuel, the book of Samuel. So if, I just, if it sounds confusing, let me know. So Samuel chapter 2 is Hannah's prayer. And one of the first thing that really strikes me about Hannah's prayer or song or whatever you want to call it, confession, is the fact that she sings it after Samuel's been given away. And that, that's, that's important for us to make a note of. Because I think a lot of us just think Hannah's asking for a son. And when she actually has it, you would think that the song would be sung then. But it's, you know, it's basically like three years later, and she's giving him to Eli and the temple, or tabernacle. And then that's when she sings. So, so this is something important for us because Hannah is not simply acting as a mother, but acting as a true disciple of God. And so her song has more to do with Samuel as being the uh, embodiment of God's deliverance versus just her son. And you see that actually in the prayer itself. Because, well, anyways, so it's important. Um, the thing about the words in hand, well, let's just read it real quick. I Samuel chapter 2, Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. 
For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Okay, great. So the, uh, the words themselves are, are, have a very strong military tinge to it. So this is a, another indication that um, God is doing something, not just for Hannah, but for the entire nation of Israel. And when I you know, read these words, I, I thought of Deborah. Deborah the judge. So Deborah and Barak were a dynamic duo. But uh, Deborah was the one who basically told Barak to take care of business because Barak was kind of sheepish about it. So Hannah is very strong and faithful and courageous in this song that she sings. But at the same time, her song is, is really about who? It's about God, right? So what's interesting is it's not, I mean, Samuel barely makes it into the, barely makes it in there. It's just all about how God's going to save her and bring up the downcast and lower the, I mean, it's all this topsy-turvy business. So, but what's interesting though is, is that this song, again, not only speaks for Hannah, but for the entire nation of Israel, because, you know, these People are reading this as a history of their salvation. So this is, uh, if a son is given in the midst of barrenness, who knows what else could happen? Because the son coming out of barrenness is a sign of God creating out of nothing. So, um, so Samuel becomes a sign of, of great possibility. Um, and there's a nice little quote here. Barrenness ends by the power of God in glad, trustful worship. So this is, this is a, another like template for the entire book of Samuel, that God is, is faithful to his promises to set aside a people for himself. Um, and so now he's, now he's going to do that. And we'll see this you know, kind of routinely always in the Bible. So, um, so yeah, so what sort of prayer song? The, uh, the one interesting thing is, is that uh, there's a, I have a long quote there from, uh, I forgot to cite it, but um, Origen was a third century theologian who just asked a simple question of whether it was even a prayer. And what he, what he uh, kind of says is that it's a prayer because it's, symbolic or symptomatic of Hannah's posture. So the words themselves, I mean, they're not, she's not really asking for anything. She's just kind of announcing things. And, and she's really just confessing what, will, what God's going to do. You know, so I mean, even in the Lord's Prayer, our Lord says, you know, to ask for forgiveness and keep us from temptation and the evil one. But in this one, it's nothing. So some people, some people call it a song, which is probably right. It's, it's a poetry, but in Hebrew, it actually rhymes. I mean, it sounds nice. English is, I mean, it sounds nice in English too, I guess, but not necessarily you know, very rhythmic. 
But um, so the, the, it's announcement of God's intervening for his people. I mean, this is the, the, the thing is that um, underlying this too from chapter one is that, um, you know, you have two wives, right? Uh, one is very fertile and has lots of babies and one doesn't. And um, kind of a, from a cultural standpoint, there is a, a, good, uh, a good idea that, um, well, okay, let's backtrack a little bit. Um, you see this in Jacob and Leah. You see this actually after uh, Israel comes into the promised land. God is always asking people to put away, to put away other gods. Um, and there's probably a good argument to make that this is not just a, uh, this is a battle between two gods. Asherah, Ashtharah, or Asheroth. I mean, you see it, which is a uh, fertility goddess. And um, Yahweh. And um, because the, this was a, a, a common deity that's found archaeology, I mean, archaeological digs have found this a uh, lot of different, uh, even temples or um, things used in these pagan rites, you know, at the same time as they find, you know, different ruins of, you know, the nation of Israel. So what we have underlined here is not just simply a miracle, you know, kind of abstracted from a cultural perspective, but in fact it is Yahweh, or Hannah's confession of Yahweh being the one true God. In fact, um, my heart exalts in the Lord, my strength is exalted in the Lord. My mom, Okay, uh, fast forward here. Uh, number two, verse two. <laughs> Verse 2, there is none holy like the Lord. So this is actually a, um, a, 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 a phrase or a statement of, of uniqueness. You know, why would she say that unless there are other gods being, or idols, we would say idols, but other gods that are actually part of what her situation is. So the distinctness of God is, is at, at play here. And what's interesting is that Hannah goes not to a fertility God, but to, to, to God, to Yahweh, the Lord Almighty. And her confession in verses 9 and 10, well, it's 8, especially in 8, where the uh, half of 8, for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. So she's making, if God can create Nothing, I mean, something out of nothing, he can bring a child out of a barren woman. So this is a really, a, a, basically, a confession of who God is and God's power over fertility. Now, of course, justice and life and death. So she's actually confessing a, a resurrection. God is the God of resurrection. You see that in verse 6. Okay. So, um, does Israel need a resurrection? Absolutely, right? I mean, at the end of Judges, everyone is doing everything in their... I didn't, I didn't look that up, but it ends that way, right? What's the phrase? Everyone's doing what's right in their own sight. Which is a, a cesspool. And you actually see this then embodied in, in chapter 2 with Eli's sons, right? Eli's sons are priests 
of Yahweh. And of course, what are they doing? I mean, they're just doing whatever is right in their own eyes. I mean, it's, it's awful. We'll get to that in a minute, though. All right, so, so Israel does need a resurrection because they're dead, spiritually dead. And you also see this in the beginning of chapter 3, if you take a look at um, 3, verse 1. Now the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Um, so the word of the Lord was rare in that day. Um, what does that mean? That means there was no prophetic utterances. So the prophets were quiet. No one was speaking, which also means... Does anyone know what the word prophet means? There's a several, a three words of, for prophet. One is seer. So the connection of the word of God and then no frequent vision is, is connected in the fact that there's no prophets now. So it's like they're, they're dead. Without God's word, what? Man does not live by bread alone, but by the very word of God. So there's no word of God, so people are dead. Um, so they need a resurrection. They need something anew, something to break from the old way. Uh, okay, and so that's, that's what's happening. Hannah's confessing this. This is what's going to happen. And in fact, I think this is the... Hannah's song is really the lens in which you want to read all of Samuel and Kings, just the whole history. So what, what, she's, what she confesses, you know, in, in chapter 2, 1 through 10, is you just got to keep that in the back of your mind when you read these stories. Really, there's a death and resurrection happening. There is a, um, a cleansing of the old and bringing in the new. But the new is never um, disconnected from the past. You know, so it's a, it's a renewal of God's promises. He's being faithful to what he said to Abraham. Okay, great. So is Hannah a reformer? Yeah, probably. I mean, she probably wouldn't see herself that way. But um, we already talked about that. Okay, great. So what's interesting, too, is this, is that you see Hannah's song repeated in Psalm 113. Actually, in 2 Samuel 22, David, he, he says something very similar to what Hannah confesses. So this whole notion that, um, so you have this, uh, in Psalm 113, it's, a, it's like a public song. It's like a song for kings, actually. But Hannah is making this now about Samuel. So you have this public drawn into the personal, but then all of a sudden the personal then is tilted towards the national. So God is doing a new thing in this person, particularity. So it's not like it just kind of happens. This is really important for us as Christians because God acts through people, through us. And oftentimes, I think when we think about like church renewal, we think, well, if we, if we kind of do things right, then it's just going to work out. But what Hannah is showing us, and Samuel especially, it's that the renewal of the person is what ignites the renewal of the community. So, and you'll see that especially with Samuel and Eli in a little bit. 
I'm going to try hard not to jump ahead. So, all right. So then the next, okay. So then, yeah, the joy of Hannah then is a sign of the greatness of Israel under David. So Hannah's song becomes everyone's song. Becomes your song. Becomes my song. All right. It's not just Hannah's. It's everybody's song. And and really, if it's not your song, then then we should probably talk after class because. You, you need to make it your song. Uh, it also talks about then, it kind of it confesses then now Samuel being, uh, well, definitely a prophet, but then foreshadows king, a king coming. So this is a, a new prophet's coming out who will be a kingmaker. The, the interesting thing about Samuel, though, is, is that um, in the New Testament, Jesus is the prophet, priest, and king. Uh, Samuel is really the, the one in the Old Testament that really gets as close to, to like that idea. So what we'll read here in a little bit is echoed in Jesus also. But the thing is, though, is that, so that Hannah's song is not just about Samuel, but towards the Messiah. So later on, in Isaiah, you'll have similar language, but of course it's in reference to, I mean, it's more explicit to the coming one. So what happens in Samuel is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And I, just in case you've read ahead, Samuel goes to God in a, in a little bit and says, you know, the people want a king. God's kind of like, well, that's, that's not a good idea, but you should give it to him anyways. That's not necessarily against the idea of a king, because it's already talked about earlier in other passages, and I, I just wrote those down, Genesis 17, 6, 49, 10. And then it's also hinted already in Judges. I didn't, I didn't write that one down. But, um, so, but the thing is, though, is that uh, Israel wants a specific kind of king. And, and then that's when we get the distinction between Saul and David. David is a is a man out of, after God's own heart. Saul's not. So God's not opposed to a king because he's already talks about it. But at the same time, it has to be a king that is called out by God and formed by God. So you, you, you see this already in Hannah's song. Like she, at the very end, in verse 10, um, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. So within the book of Samuel, of course, who's, who's the king? Or he said David. And of course, we know that David is anointed. I mean, we'll get to that story, but it's very, you know, very beautiful. Well, okay, even within, okay, um, verse 5, right? I need reading glasses. Is it where they talk about the seven? Yeah, right. the baron has born seven. Uh, where's David in the line of Jesse? You know which child he is? Yeah, he's the last one. We always think about it, but he's the eighth. He's the eighth one. So seven is not quite enough. I need one more. So, so really, it's, you have this foreshadowing of David in Hannah's song, but of course, it goes even beyond David. Okay, um, we already talked about the giver, the, the emphasis is on the giver and the gift. Um, great. 
Oh, does Hannah's song, I mean, when you write, uh, maybe Pastor Bukes already mentioned it, but does it sound familiar? Of course, it sounds like Mary, right? And the Magnificat. It's, um, yeah, it's the same, all the same themes of Hannah then are played out in Mary. And of course, Mary's song, it's not really, I mean, it's about God, her Savior, but of course now it's really about her, her son, her child, where Hannah is it's always looking toward, it's looking to something else. Um, also, too, the Magnificat is, so Hannah is really about Israel, and the Magnificat is really about the world. So you have a, again, as Hannah's song needs to be your song, Mary's song needs to be your song, too. It's really uh, a powerful image. And what also is interesting, too, about both of these is that, um, you know, the, the role of women and how women, again, are leading the charge for all of the people of God when it comes to confessing and trusting in God's promises. I don't want to make a big deal about that, but it should be said. I want to make sure that everybody realizes that. Um, <laughs> Because, you know, after Hannah comes about Samuel and then Saul and then David and then Solomon and kind of all hell breaks loose after that. But the, the point is, is that you have this faithful woman who is trusting in the promises of God to not only give her a child, but also to save Israel. And then and she's the, like the ultimate picture of what everyone should be like. And then you get that kind of in spades again in Mary. So, all right, great. Any questions about the song of, of Hannah? Or you want to pick, I mean, there's a lot of interesting little notes about, I think on the back of your little packet, I, I put a picture of, I don't know why I put it second. Um, it was just easier for me. But um, there's a picture of an Acadian genie or god. And the horns, so Hannah talks about the horn in verse 1, I believe. I can't even read this. I'm just going to get my computer, I can hear. Uh, so anyways, so the idea of horns and then also thunder, I didn't put that picture in there. So Hannah's, Hannah is really confessing about like, hey, you have a God that has a horn on? Well, my God has, is the real horn of my salvation. There's also an image of God's holding thunder, of course, if you know Greek mythology, right? That still gets played out in Greece, right? Zeus, right? Zeus is the god of thunder, or lightning, right? Um, but of course, Hannah says, well, Yahweh is really the guy who's in charge of the thunder. So, oh yeah, it's right there in the beginning. My heart exalts in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord. So, there's a... Um, Okay. Verse 8. Raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not might, not by might shall a man prevail. That's... It's verse 9. Yeah. He, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones. Of course, what does that sound like? For any New Testament ones? Yeah. Mary said his mercy is still Yep. So 
Oh yeah, I mean, there's it's really very, very, very similar. No, uh, blessed are those the feet of those who bring the good news, right? Okay, great. Eli's worthless sons is what the subheading is in the English Standard Version. But um, what we really have is a compare and contrast between Samuel and Eli's son. So you have a Samuel who's becoming a priest, and you have Eli's son who are like the anti-priests. So everything that Eli's sons are, Samuel's not, and that, that's good. I mean, Samuel should not be like them. I, I think I put a picture of a three-pronged fork. That was from Gizar, Gizar, which is um, actually west of where Shiloh is. Did Pastor Bukes bring a, like a map last week? I forgot to ask him before we... Okay. It's very helpful to figure out where all this is happening. Okay, great. Uh, yeah, so that prong fork, I think, is, in, is related to the verse 13. But the whole point, though, is that um, Samuel is becoming a priest. He wears an, an ephod, and he'll, he'll be the faithful priest. He's the rise of the faithful priest and the downfall of the unfaithful ones. Um, the... Uh, all right. Um, oh, the oh the offenses. Okay, great. So the three offenses. There is they basically they just basically would, they do whatever they want, which is a fulfillment at the end of Judges. Right? They just they did what was right in their own eyes. So now we see that again. So they 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 select the best parts of the sacrifices from themselves. Um, you know, they even prefer to do it their own way, and uh, the refusal to yield the fat for burning on the altar. Now that might sound strange to us, but the fat was the the fat was the part that was reserved for for God. And for multiple reasons, we're not talking about the marbled fat and meat that we all kind of cut out cuz we know we we don't want our waistlines to grow. This is the fat, this is the part that's it's basically unedible. Um and so that that's kind of the strange thing where they're, we're not really sure what they're doing. Like, why are they doing this? So there, it could be the part uh, that's kind of just around the organs, um, but it's, it's not the part that's just marbled into the meat, okay? And, and so that was deemed the best part. In fact, the word fat, well, the word that's used for fat in this instance is synonymous with the best, with the word best. <laughs> so the fat of the land, that's a phrase I think that's in the ESV. If not, it's, I'm pretty sure it's in the King James Version. Um, the best of the land. All right, well, anyways, so again, so they're not only just screwing things up, but they're taking what belongs to God and making it theirs. So they are literally putting themselves above God, which explains then their offense and how God handles this. So like the sin against the Holy Spirit, their crimes are kind of irreversible, unforgivable. And it's unforgivable because they made themselves gods. Okay, this is a, this is a unf- they are unfaithful, faithless, no faith. So especially in the Old Testament, God is a jealous God, 
already from Exodus, right? So we know that when you, if, if you go against God, you know, he'll probably kick your butt to kind of remind you that he's in charge. But if you live as if you are God, the only thing that God can do is actually destroy you. Because it's not just breaking his laws, it's actually abdicating him. So if you, have, if you won't have God, period, then God will say, well, then you can have it your way, but he's a consuming fire. So you don't, they're not playing with fire. They're actually just jumping into it. And Well, God has some harsh words for them. Oh, yeah, so maybe we should read that. Verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. By the way, so it's not just a derogatory statement. I didn't put that in there. What does it mean to not have worth? They've lost, again, we're, we, in our modern minds, this sounds like a kind of a more therapeutic question. But if they have no worth, they are... They, that's exactly right. They're, they are now subhuman. I mean, they're still creatures of God and still humans, but they actually are not who God made them to be. So they have no reason to live, but even as if you wanted to do, like, understand them like, from an anthropology perspective, they, they're just almost acting like animals. They have no worth. They have no dignity. They did not know the Lord. Okay, that's, that explains it. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servants would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. So, you know, they're taking it without, I mean, they're just literally just doing whatever they want. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first. And then take as much as you wish. So even if the man says, well, you, you can have my meat, that's fine, but make sure that God gets his praise. <laughs> he would say, no, you must give it now. If not, I will take it by force. Which, again, everything that Hannah says, because um, verse 9 for not by might shall a man prevail. And what are they doing? They're taking things by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make it for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Okay, so not only do we revisit uh, Hannah and Elkanah, the prayer that, San that Hannah made is blessed by God, because not because of her worthiness, but because 
of God's mightiness. That's another thing, too. Okay. Um, so the shield of God now becomes a sword, and he's going to fight for his faithful ones. So in that reading that we just read, there, there are people who are trying to be faithful to Yahweh. They're basically telling Hophni and Phineas, hey, whoa, wait a second, this is not how things are done. And they're just, you know, they're uh, using their power for, for, for wrong, for sinful reasons. So, um, so he's, the Lord can't let this happen because he wants his faithful ones to be, you know, to grow in faith. And so, basically in this situation, who's first? Um, they, they're putting themselves first. And unfortunately, when Eli, we're not going to read that part, but when Eli rebukes his sons, um, and he doesn't do anything about it after that, he's now putting his family before God. Testing your, this is more of a trivial point, this will come up later. But Samuel's given a tough spot. I, I forgot his name off the top of my head. But Samuel does some pretty awful things later on that we would consider unbefitting of a priest and a prophet. Does anyone remember what he does? I, I, I keep on saying Ambalek, but that's not right. He takes a knife and he chops up somebody. Okay. Um, which is awful, of course. But Eli, he's not going to do that. Even though his sons need to be eradicated. Yeah. So, so Eli held great power, and he passed it on to his children, his sons. Um, and they all thought it just came from them, so they could just do whatever they want. They misunderstood that it actually came from God. Now, the great thing about Eli, though, is things change for him in chapter 3. But let's just compare. Samuel is, is a young man, just like the two young men. Uh, their father is Eli. How is Samuel Eli's son? Because Samuel, or because his family gave him to the... Yeah. To the... So, yeah, you have two levels that Eli is occupying. He's got his kind of like biological family with his worthless sons. But he also has another family, the, the, kind of the family of God, which Samuel then embodies. So Samuel is a faithful priest. I mean, he is faithful, even though he's got terrible sons. And he passes on that faithfulness to Samuel. And there's a, there's a scene when... Samuel tells Eli what God said to him as a transition. Samuel now becomes, it's like the Jedi Knight. Now the student becomes the master. And then Eli, of course, has to take not, not only that role, like he has to hand off that role and now becomes a servant of Samuel. It's pretty extraordinary, but th- that we're getting ahead of ourselves. And both are great. So they're great sinners and Samuel, actually, it's a little bit later. It's not in chapter 2. He's a, he's a, he's a mature man. He's, he's great in the sight of God. 
I mean, well, and you get a little bit of that, of the foreshadowing of this when, in verse 26. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man, which is almost a direct quote of who? Jesus in Luke chapter 2. Okay. All right, so, so Samuel is now is becoming a priest. Obviously, where's the ephod? Um, he, he, you know, he's the, he is the embodiment of this faithful priest that's going to come and renew Israel. Uh, just by the way, there's three types of ephods, two that are good and one not so good. Uh, the one that he's wearing is just probably the, the normal garment of a priest. It's, it's not like the high priestly one. It's in Exodus 28 and 29. It's got jewels and stones. and that's, That would be the high priest. And he, Samuel's not the high priest. Um, we already talked about Samuel as a type of Christ. Obviously, he's saying, okay, so we don't need to belabor that point. Any questions about this? Uh, oh, so God pronounces a, a judgment. We're not going to read that part, but basically, yeah, Marilyn. Oh, I want to know, God chose them in, in Egypt. And does that mean just the Levites? Yeah. Yeah, they're all Levites. Yeah, specific family. Yeah, so this is where things, again, I, I should have asked Pastor Bukes about the map. So Levites don't have um, territory. So when they talk about like being an, uh, an, an um, Ephra, uh, from chapter one, hang on. No, it is Ephra, Ephrathite. No, good. I remember greatly. So Samuel is from the from the, that phrase is probably meaning like he's from that region of Ephraim, even though because Samuel couldn't be a priest unless he was a Levite. Then um, you have Eli though, who also is a Levite, being a priest. But you have this exchange now of like the the priestly families, like Eli's lineage is done, will no longer be a priest, and Samuel's will rise up. Tracy. Hi. Um, when you're saying that Eli's sons couldn't they have turned around and passed them together? Well, yeah, absolutely, obviously they could. Yeah. They but they they didn't. They, it, yeah. They, um, and what God held against them was, I guess, they like stole from. Uh, no, it's even more than that. It's more fundamental than that. Yeah, it's not even their actions, it's the fact that they actually consider themselves gods. Yeah, basically, because when you, when you take God, when you put yourself above God, no matter what you call it, you're a God. Yeah, so if you think, if you think yeah, the world, the world revolved around them. Yep. Now, that's, that's the challenge for all of us, right? Is if we think everybody should adjust their lives to us, we're basically, you know, saying that we're, we're the center of reality. Which means then even God should should adjust His life to us, right? And that's so that that's what's happening here. Now, if 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 they were to sit here and say, "Do you think yourselves are gods?" They would probably say no, but their actions speak differently. And that's the thing too is that in in Samuel this this chapter it's it's all description of what they've done. It's not it's not you know. I mean, you hear, you hear a little words about like, hey, no, I'm going to take, if you don't give this to me, I'm going to take it by force. But when they had that um, offering, yeah. God asked him to wait. He was like, no, I don't wait. No, yeah, exactly. And in fact, they take, they take the part that's for God and, and 
and give it to themselves. How do you do that? How do you now? The real house. Yeah, well, actually, the, the, the thing for, for us right now is what belongs to God? Everything, right? And so we want to order our lives around what, God, what Christ says. So our life, ha- Christ has to be the center of our life. So that means, you know, not only saying our prayers, coming to church. So we've got our time. We've got to set our time around who Christ is. Um, we've got to set uh, our words, what we say, has to be centered on Christ. Our financial life has to be centered on Christ. Um, our friendships have to be centered on Christ. So that's how we, we do it today. Um, and praise be to God, you know, hopefully nobody in this room says, if, you know, if you, don't, if you don't give me this stuff, I'm just going to take it by force. But, but sometimes we do. It could be passive aggressively. It could be, um, I mean, we don't use a three-pronged fork to do it anymore. Right? We don't, we don't take what God belongs to God. But, I get coming to church and saying your prayers. For every word that you speak to everyone? Yeah, everyone has to. I mean, but that's the thing is that's a tall order, right? And we don't, we don't do that. We, then that's where the forgiveness of sins comes in. Well, that, that's exactly right. So all these are not easy, but that's precisely what God asks of us because that's the way reality is. God is the God of, is, is Hannah's song, right? The one who formed the earth. The one who can... Um, bring the dead back alive again. So nothing is impossible for God. And now this, I mean, there's so many things that can be said about this, is that what does the angel Gabriel say to Mary before she sings her song? Yeah, you're highly favored. And then, how, and then Mary says, well, how, how can this be? And then, she, and then the angel Gabriel says, Nothing's impossible for God. So Jay-Z might say, I, I, can't, I, can't, I, don't, I don't know if I can say all these words. I don't know if I can say everything that glorifies God. You know, there's times where I, I glorify myself or, you know, there's times where I think about myself first. But the angel Gabriel to say to you, Tracy, oh, there's nothing impossible for God, even for you. He can change you. No, I don't. I don't. Absolutely not. And that's why we have the forgiveness of sins in our, our church service is when we confess our sins, it's a reminder. It's not only to receive forgiveness, but a reminder that we do not live apart from God's word and God's strength and God's power. And where many of us might say this is hopeless, it is hopeless if it's only on ourselves. But it's not hopeless because we have a God who can raise people from the dead. So we have great hope in him. Not in ourselves, Tracy. At the end of the prayers and the... Yeah, the bulletin. Yeah, right, exactly. That's exactly right. So it's a constant. Well, this goes back to Hannah's prayer, too. Now I'll get to Marilyn's. Hannah's prayer, again, it has, it, it has less to do with the words, but about the posture of who Hannah is. Hannah's life is prayer. We cannot live our life apart from God's speaking to us. We can't say anything without God giving us a word. Because we have no word apart from God's word. You've got to think about that for a while because we've never thought about ourselves. But the only way we can speak is if we've been given a word. So we have to ask ourselves, well, where do words come from? Well, it comes from the one who speaks. 
the Word of God, Jesus. So we also have to ask ourselves, too, like, why would I want to speak something besides God's Word? Now, you don't want to think literal about this, meaning, like, can I only say words that are in the Bible? No. You want your words to be formed by Christ because all words belong to God because he is the Word. He's language. I know that's getting very philosophical, but um, so so while that might seem like a tall order, it's not for God. The other time, though, this goes back to your original point, though, is like, you know, if if Hophni and Phineas said, you know, I'm sorry for what I've done, God will forgive them, of course, but that's that's not what happens. So we want to make sure we stick to the words on the page and not speculate about things that could have, would have, should have, because that distracts us from the reality of what is actually happening in Samuel. And that's really important for us, because I think we get so wrapped up about like Eli's sons and Eli's losing his priest, priestly vocation, when in fact, it's not, it's not primarily about them, it's, it's primarily about God's action in Samuel. And don't we do that with ourselves? We really focus on our sinfulness? Oh, I'm a poor, sinful being, right? But we forget about how it ends, about God's forgiveness and our delighting in God's will in our life. We, we, we are, you know, not to get, again, Martin Luther has a phrase, we are simultaneously saint and sinner or justified and sinner. We are fully justified. We are saints. So the question would be whether do you want to focus on the sinner part or on, this, on Jesus making you a saint? When you put it that way, you're like, oh, of course I want to focus on Jesus' work in my life. All right, Marilyn. Well, I just was looking at verse 12, and Eli's son said, they did not know the Lord. That means they didn't have faith, so they couldn't do any good thing no matter No, that's exactly right. So that goes back to Tracy's question is that, well, yeah, if, if they would definitely ask for forgiveness, but the fact is, is that they are, they are again, they are, they are faithless. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're, they're completely outside the bounds. Well, like David did horrible things, but he was forgiven because he had faith. He was- right. So, again, you see the whole story happening here. And then Eli himself, when Eli says to Samuel, you have to tell me what God said, because Samuel does not want to tell Eli what God said, because God basically tells Samuel, Eli's, Sons are going to die, and Eli's going to not be, you know, not hold his position anymore. His life is over, basically. Samuel doesn't want to tell that to Eli because Samuel has raised, I mean, Eli has raised Samuel, and Samuel has, you know, a lot of love for Eli. But Eli, what does he do? He gives up himself. He's completely willing to receive whatever God says because he believes God to be just and right. That's an amazing thing. I mean, Eli is very amazing in this whole, these two chapters, is that he goes from having basically the most powerful position in the nation, because people come to Shiloh, this is where the Lord appeared, and, he, and, he, and then things just go downhill, and the moment where he, like the worst, he says to Samuel, you, you have to tell me, and Eli says, let it be so, basically. To Samuel's word. That only takes, that takes trust, self-sacrifice, 
and, and putting God first. So that goes back to your question, Tracy, is that Eli embodies this, this, this question about can God save the person who's, who's really down and make him a new person? Absolutely. Uh, okay, great. So the call of Samuel, this is real, like just some couple, I think these are really interesting things. There was a common practice amongst the gods in um, you know, Mesopotamia and Syria and even in Egypt called incubation where people would spend the night in front of the idol to seek that they would get a dream or some kind of vision. The thing is, though, there's no known example in all of the ancient Near East of an unintentional incubation dream. So this is a very unique story when you compare all the other stories in the ancient Near East. Completely different. So it's probably not an incubation, Maybe it is because I mean they're sleeping, they're sleeping in the temple. Why would people do that? I don't. That's just a, that's not not normal. It's an unusual thing. But um, remember, God's word is infrequent, and no one's seen any visions. So I think they're kind of desperate. So that's why they're sleeping in the temple. The thing is, though, Samuel thinks Eli is speaking. And there's a very good real question about like, maybe actually Eli physically is speaking and God is actually using Eli to say his word and Eli doesn't know it. So that's why he keeps going back to Eli. Did you say something? And then Eli realizes, wait, it's not me. It's God speaking through me. Goes lay down and then whatever he says. Uh, so, yeah, so I think the term is a, a dream theophany, a revealing of God. The, the thing about the menorah, so then in verse 2, um, it says the lamp of God did not go out. Um, the menor- so if you know the, the tabernacle, the menorah, the, the lamp, the light of God, it was never supposed to go out. So the reference that it, it wasn't like it had not gone out really makes no sense unless... There's something else happening here. And, and most likely, because there's other references to, to the lamp of God or the lamp of the word or referring to hope. And then the word of the Lord was rare. The prophet couldn't see very well. Um, and then Eli's eye vision, eyesight grew dim. All these are connected. So Eli could be getting old and he can't see real well, but it's, that's not the primary Primary point. The primary point is that he's he he's no longer a prophet. He's he's lost his sight, his seerness, his prophetness. So the thing is, is that I think Eli knows this about himself. And when when God speaks to Samuel, Eli's very very renewed by this. Again, it's it's in the dark and people are sleeping. When does God work the most? When things seem hopeless. He speaks when people can't even speak, when people are even unconscious. I mean, so this really shows what God is up to. Now, the thing is, though, is that the calling of, of Samuel actually does something to Samuel. It doesn't just give him a job, but it, make, it actually makes him someone. And that someone is the change for Israel. We already talked about this a little earlier, is that 
when Samuel is called by God, he is the character. So God is embodied. His change is embodied in people. And he becomes, he becomes that change. Like Abraham, Samuel becomes how he's supposed to be through God's calling. And the yes to that calling. So if God just said, Samuel, Samuel, and he never said anything back, is Samuel changed? Well, no. The word is given and the word is received. And how do you know a word is received? Yeah, a response. Words are supposed to be spoken. So how would you know? It's, you do this to your children all the time. Are you listening to me? Well, yeah, when you say that, you're actually asking, tell me what I said, right? Because, you know, I ask that question to my children, they're like, yeah, Dad. I'm like, tell me what I just said. Because that's what I really want to know. I don't really want to know whether they heard me or not. Because, yeah, I hear noise coming out of your mouth, Dad. I want them to actually be able to say the word back. So that, that, that's what's going on here. And so when Samuel says, here I am, or speak for your servant hears, he's now, he's now becoming this prophet. He is the prophet that God has for him. Who you are just doesn't happen, but it's based upon God's working outside of you and inside of you. So this is one of the great things. Is it goes back to Tracy's point, too, about like when, we center, when Christ is the center of our life, we are constantly be molded into the shape of Jesus, and so there's always this speaking of Christ to us and all of us hearing and then responding back. Of course, that's embodied in Mary, too. That goes back to the Hannah's song, too. But, um, but this calling is a new thing, right? I mean, there's no prophets anymore. No one can, I mean, no one's, things are not happening. It's, it's a new thing. It's a break from business as usual, but it's also based on God's foretelling. So it wasn't as a complete surprise because he made these promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But at the same time, for the people in the immediate situation, it sounds like, ooh, God's, God's up to something new. So it's a renewal. So Samuel becomes this person that affects the whole community. So God calls him out. So he's separated. And in contrast to the old order, judges, sons of Eli. So that he might speak God's word, but also anoint the king. Specifically King David. And then that's a big deal, right? King David is the ultimate king. Well, sort of. I mean, King Solomon, King David and Solomon make kind of the, the ultimate king. Faithful king, I should say. Carol. What exactly does verse 7 mean? In, in chapter 3? In chapter 3, Samuel did not yet know the Lord. Yeah. Hang on. The Lord did not yet know Right. Yeah, so it, this is in reference to, right, it's not, a, it's not an emphatic, uh, 
Um, there was not a, I'll call it a, a uh, intellectual knowledge. Right. It's, yeah, exactly. So he, sorry, because you want to compare and contrast this with the later, oh, yeah, yeah. In verses, uh, they use the same language. No, exactly. So you have you have Eli actually dying. I mean, so so Eli's really at the end of his rope in a sense, and that's why it's really important for us to understand. Is like thinking images is that Eli is lying down when when this happens, right? Yeah, but no, I mean, I'm, 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 it uses the same language for Samuel as it did for Eli. Sons. That's right. The Lord Samuel. Did not know the Lord. That's right. Compare and contrast. But of course, what happens now? Right. So Samuel did not know, not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. So the knowledge, like you said, so you have this, um, you know, kind of intellectual knowledge, and then you also have coming back a couple Bible studies ago, knowing the Lord, union, intimate, like Adam knew Eve, child was born. That's the knowledge of Samuel. And Samuel did not have that knowledge yet of God, of the intimacy. But of course, that, that's because he has not been raised from the dead. Does that make sense? So like we, you, you can know God, Intellectually, but it's not until you're baptized that you know God. Because you've been risen from the dead. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it could be maybe, maybe it was that he did not know what God's plan was work would be. Well, that goes to the second part. So these two are distinctly connected. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Okay. What word? It's not just the word, like the Bible. It's the specific word. That changes him to be this prophet, kingmaker, his mission. And maybe he did have the full uh, Holy Spirit. You know, like when the disciples before the Pentecost. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. I was going to say, in regards to Eli's sons, um, they um, didn't know the Lord in the sense that they didn't have the Holy Spirit. Because I was thinking of Pastor Luke's. Pastor yeah. mentioned that we should pray for the Holy Spirit. Oh, yeah. And when Mary, when the angel came to Mary, mm-hmm. first says that the Holy Spirit came on. Yeah, overshadowed her, yep. And so it's the same with us. You know? Yeah, these are all great connections, Donna. Um, we should rejoice that we have the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. But then he keeps renewing that. There's always more of there's always more to God, right? So we always need more Holy Spirit. It's not this is uh so let's just finish Carol's question real quick. So you have you have these two levels happening in Eli it's it's, it's the foils. So you whatever's happening to Samuel, the opposite is happening in Eli's uh, sons. So I mean, I, to be honest, I I really want, you make a chart. It's really Really easy to see that, which I guess I should have. I'm thinking about that right now. But okay, but back then to Donna's question. So Mary, of course, was a faithful Jew, right? But the Holy Spirit overshadowed her, so she was 
I mean, she was saturated with the Holy Spirit. So God knew Mary, and Jesus comes. Yeah, right, exactly. It's exactly right. That's why I think it's a great comparison. But it's not, it's not the only comparison. I mean, there's a variety of other comparisons in Scripture that really you make this distinction of, of knowing and knowing. So um, we do have to finish. We have to be done. But um, Eli's wanting, Samuel's waxing. Read Samuel chapter 4 for next week. I, you know, we're going to try to maybe do like 4, 5, 6, 7. I, it, so... I mean, these are long books, so we can't, you know, spend the next five years studying these. So, so feel free to read ahead or not. Um, we'll try to read as much as possible. I wanted to read more of the Bible in class. I'll work on that myself. So, do a better job next time. But thank you so much. Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you.